The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to the word in black and red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Micah Belong, the wise old llama, and be joined today by the wonderful John Kranz and Snorkel. John is a UMC pastor, and John, tell me a little bit more about yourself and, and how you find found yourself here on your journey. You know, my Christian faith really brought me towards a more leftist direction. The pandemic definitely kicked that in high gear. I, I still say I'm, I'm reading the literature, still learning, uh, still confirming my views, but I, I know I'm generally an anarchist, leftist, still in love with Christ. None of those things have to be against one another. And I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. And when it, it, it helps when your savior's whole thing was saying, this empire is illegitimate. I'm going to use the titles of the emperor to subvert his power, which is why we say Jesus is Lord and Christ is King and there is no other. And Snorkel is an amateur archaeologist who has been studying the ancient Near East for the past decade. Snorkel, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you found yourself here. Hi. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. I have a passion for archaeology and history and learning about the ancient Near East in particular. The pre-pottery, Neolithic is my specialty. But I have found myself becoming more and more progressive the older I get and the more experience I have in the real world. I was raised extremely conservative, extremely fundamentalist Christian, and I've just been pushing more and more leftist and progressive and wanting to explore what the word of Christ means in the truth and not just hampered by any political view. And so I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. Absolutely. And I think that as soon as you realize that reading the Bible uh, from a Western perspective often means reading a Bible from a capitalist perspective, and you try to tear that off, you realize, oh, this whole book was written by an oppressed people. It's a leftist book. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Well, speaking of that leftist book, we're going to go ahead and start reading this passage. Genesis 6, 5, 9-16. The Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth, and that every idea their minds thought up was always completely evil. The Lord regretted making human beings on the earth, and God was heartbroken. So the Lord said, I will wipe off of the land the human race that I've created, from human beings to livestock to the crawling things to the birds in the skies, because I regret I ever made them. But as for Noah, the Lord approved of him. These are Noah's descendants. In his generation, Noah was a moral and exemplary man. He walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In God's sight, the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God saw that the earth was corrupt because all creatures behaved corruptly on the earth. God said to Noah, The end has come for all creatures, since they have filled the earth with violence. I am now about to destroy them along with the earth. So make a wooden ark. 
Make the ark with nesting places and cover it inside and outside with tar. This is how you should make it. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for the ark and complete it one foot from the top. Put a door in its side. In the hold below, make the second and third decks. I am now bringing the floodwaters over the earth to destroy everything under the sky that breathes. Everything on earth is about to take its last breath. But I will set up my covenant with you. You will go into the ark together with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. From all living things, from all creatures, you are to bring a pair, male and female, into the ark with you to keep them alive from each kind of bird, from each kind of livestock, and from each kind of everything that crawls on the ground, a pair from each will go in with you to stay alive. Take some from every kind of food and stow it as food for you and for the animals. Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark with your whole household, because among this generation I have seen that you are a moral man. From every clean animal take seven pairs, a male and his mate, and from every unclean animal take one pair, a male and his mate. And from the birds of the sky as well, take seven pairs, male and female, so that their offspring will survive throughout the earth. In seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights. I will wipe off from the fertile land every living thing that I have made. Noah did everything the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the floodwaters arrived on earth. Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives with him entered the ark to escape the floodwaters. From the clean and unclean animals, from the birds and everything crawling on the ground, two of each, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, just as God commanded Noah. After seven days, the floodwaters arrived on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day, on that day all the springs of the deep sea erupted, and the windows in the skies opened. It rained on the earth forty days and forty nights. That same day Noah, with his sons Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, Noah's wife and his son's three wives went into the ark. They and every kind of animal, every kind of livestock, every kind that crawls on the ground, every kind of bird, they came to Noah and entered the ark. Two of every creature that breathes, male and female of every creature, went in, just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. The flood remained on the earth for forty days. The waters rose, lifted the ark, and it rode high above the earth. The waters rose and spread out over the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the waters. The waters rose even higher over the earth. They covered all of the highest mountains under the sky. The waters rose 23 feet high, covering the mountains. Every creature took its last breath. The things crawling on the ground, birds, livestock, wild animals, everything swarming on the ground, and every human being. Everything on dry land with life's breath in its nostrils died. God wiped away every living thing that was on the fertile land. From human beings to livestock to crawling things to birds in the sky, they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah and those with him in the ark were left. The waters rose over the earth for 150 days. God remembered Noah, all those alive, and all the animals with him in the ark. God sent a wind over the earth so that the waters receded. The springs of the deep sea and the skies closed up. The skies held back the rain. The waters receded gradually from the earth. After 150 days, the waters decreased. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day, the ark came to rest on the Ararat Mountains. The waters decreased gradually until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the mountain peaks appeared. After forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. He sent out a raven, and it flew back and forth until the waters over the entire earth had dried up. 
Then he sent out a dove to see if the waters on all of the fertile land had subsided. But the dove found no place to set its foot. It returned to him in the ark since water still covered the entire earth. Noah stretched out his hand, took it, and brought it back into the ark. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out from the ark again. The dove came back to him in the evening, grasping a torn olive leaf in its beak. Then Noah knew that the waters were subsiding from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove, but it didn't come back to him again. In Noah's six hundred first year, on the first day of the first month, the waters dried up from the earth. Noah removed the ark's hatch and saw that the surface of the fertile land had dried up. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day, the earth was dry. God spoke to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you all the animals of every kind, birds, livestock, everything crawling on the ground, so that they may populate the earth, be fertile, and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out of the ark with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives. All the animals, all the livestock, all the birds, and everything crawling on the ground came out of the ark by their families. Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of the clean, large animals and some of the clean birds and placed entirely burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the pleasing scent, and the Lord thought to God's self, I will not curse the fertile land any more because of human beings, since the ideas of the human mind are evil from their youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth exists, seed time and harvest, cold and hot, summer and autumn, day and night will not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fertile, multiply and fill the earth. All of the animals on the earth will fear you and dread you, all the birds in the skies, everything crawling on the ground, and all of the sea's fish. They are in your power. Everything that lives and moves will be your food. Just as I gave you the green grasses, I now give you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its life, its blood in it. I will surely demand your blood for a human life. From every living thing, I will demand it. From humans, from a man for his brother, I will demand something for a human life. Whoever sheds human blood, by a human his blood will be shed. For in the divine image, God made human beings. As for you, be fertile and multiply. Populate the earth and multiply in it. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I am now setting up my covenant with you, with your descendants, and with every living being with you, with the birds, with the large animals, and with all the animals of the earth, leaving the ark with you. I will set up my covenant with you so that never again will all life be cut off by floodwaters. They will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the symbol of the covenant that I am drawing up between me and you and every living thing with you on behalf of every future generation. I have placed my bow in the clouds. It will be the symbol of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember the covenant between me and you and every living being among all the creatures. Floodwaters will never again destroy all creatures. The bow will be in the clouds, and upon seeing it, I will remember the enduring covenant between God and every living being of all the earth's creatures. Let's acknowledge first off that this story is a terrible story. It is the story of the destruction of all of humanity because of humanity's violence. Right? This is an ancient telling of a story like nuclear holocaust, like climate change. Those stories are awful and dramatic, and this myth is telling that kind of story in the ancient world. And so while we're thinking about the fact that this is an awful story, let's also think about what is the myth trying to tell us 
about what's actually happening. And that's what we're going to discuss a little bit more in depth as we talk about this story. One of the things that I think is most interesting about the story is that this is the first example in the Bible of a theme that consistently comes up, the cycle of death and regeneration, the cycle of, in Christian terms, death and resurrection. And uh, Snorkel, tell us more about how this story relates to the original creation story that we read in Genesis 1. Yeah, so... In Genesis 1, there's a very specific outline of the order of creation, and it's not just the order in which things are created, but also the order in which things are given a function. And I read and studied a whole lot on various Near Eastern creation myths, and they all have this kind of setup between what is created and the function that each part of creation is given. And so for humanity... God is really giving the function of leadership, of stewardship, of kingship and priesthood to humanity when he creates it. Um, And in Genesis 1, it's a different creation story than we get in Genesis 2. And that's something that, you know, it's often talked about and pointed out the differences between that. But by the time we get to Genesis 6 and you get the flood and everything, you also kind of get this image of regeneration because you have the animals coming out of the ark kind of as a counterpart to the original animals being created and Adam naming them. You have Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives set up as the archetype of humanity commanded to be fruitful and multiply. You have the creation living on the earth and God making a covenant with them, even though there was no specific covenant in the original creation story, I feel like it's implicitly understood that humankind is to function as a sort of priesthood for God on his creation. And after it was corrupt, you have this kind of new priesthood and this new creation preserved through Noah and his family, especially because one of the first things Noah does is create an altar to God. Absolutely, absolutely. And that that reintegration, that resurrection, that coming back to these things, I think is is both a story of the mercy of God, but also the resilience of humanity, that the entire world is destroyed. And the first thing that Noah does is not plant a field or go and make sure that he has enough to eat. It's to go and offer this altar up to God to recognize that this miracle has gone on, right? It's that Noah is creating art, that Noah is creating something beautiful, that Noah is is engaging in imaginative creation, yeah, which is the same sort of creation that humanity is engaging in when they named the animals in that first creation story. Definitely. And you see a lot of this kind of parallelism between other ancient Near Eastern myths about like, you know, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's a whole lot of parallels between the story of Noah and the flood and humanity trying to preserve some kind of gift given by a deity or the deities, some kind of cosmic heavenly gift that they're trying to preserve through all kinds of turmoil and feel like that's that's the core truth that is really trying to be preserved in this story but i've heard a whole lot of like fringe theories about sites like gobekli tepe where they have all these different kinds of animal carving supposedly i say this with a huge grain of salt because i don't actually believe it being part of like the altar that Noah built with the different animals and stuff after the flood. And I, this is extremely fringe and like answers in Genesis type shit. But the idea that 
a deity preserving humankind and animal kind in general as a kind of mercy, like you said, Micah, really being preserved and drawn through all of these myths and legends and preserved, I think is important. Yeah. And while I don't think that those markings are Noah's altar, I do certainly think (laughs) that they they are markings of ancient people who are seeing that same sort of theme. I just survived this terrible storm that I've never seen before and wiped out half the village and I survived it. It must be because God had mercy on me, right? Or the gods. Oh, exactly. There's been there's been so many quote unquote great floods in humanity. There have been a number of enormous localized floods that might have lent credence to this story and definitely added to this narrative of destruction and mercy and resurrection of life. Absolutely. Well, and and I think what's so interesting, you you point out the fact that the first and second creation stories have these contradictory narratives, right? They're, they're different stories. And as we read through this story, there are two different stories that are being told that are actually being woven into one. So at fir- the first story tells us, go and take two of every animal. And the second story tells us, take seven of every clean animal and two of every unclean animal. Well, those are two contradictory stories, right? And that's because there is an ancient story, an oral story that's told, and it is being intermeshed with a priestly story, a a story that comes from the religious elites who are trying to make this story literally kosher. Absolutely. And the deeper you look, the more you find the most ancient form of this like pre-Neolithic, pre-Indo-European culture story that is there. The core of it is there was a flood. Whether it covered the entire earth doesn't really matter. There was a flood. The people remembered. It was destruction. It was purifying in a way. And somebody survived it and somebody felt that their God had mercy on them. And regardless of what you believe, there is wisdom to be gained from that story that is remembered through countless generations in countless different cultures. I absolutely agree that that myth is so useful as we're thinking about leftist revolution, right? As we're thinking about these things, we have to remember that there are all sorts of ways in which we might fail. Right, we have we are not just on our own here as leftists. We are sitting on the shoulders of giants of people who have come before us, who have paved the way, who have fought and died to make the world a better place. And what holds us on? We still hope that we can make that better world that should come. I can't stand leftists who are pessimistic. I don't understand why you're why you're a leftist. If you're pessimistic, be a capitalist, right? Because you know the world is going to end and it's going to suck and all that sort of thing. And if you think that we could build a better world, come join me and let's make a better one. <laughs> but don't sit here and tell me about how everything is going to be terrible. Let's do something to make what's terrible better. And I'm a hypocrite. I will sit here and moan about all the terrible ways that the world is set up, but it has to be rooted in actually doing something to make the world better. Now, there's another reading of the story that John is going to introduce us to that is God doing that revolution. <laughs> and John, tell me a little bit more about God destroying the corrupt systems in this story. Yes, yeah, so we, we do see here that, that God looks upon the world, sees that it's filled with violence. And, you know, as, as leftists, I think we need to remember that uh, whether it was feudalism way back when or, or capitalism today, they are systems that depend on violence, that depend on 
threats of force against people that we believe are unjust and that hurt people uh, in, a, in a very abusive and unnecessary ways. And God looks at the world and sees that it is filled with evil. The world is filled with violence that humans and their, their role as stewards have you know, flooded this violence all the way through, which kind of gets back to our later discussion on, you know, uh, climate change. And God acts to stop that. Uh, God acts in a revolutionary way, a way that's not neat and easy or peaceful. You know, I, I know, I think all of us agree to read this allegorically, not literally. And it's it's very problematic that God has such indiscriminate violence. But there is a reading of this in which God sees a corrupt system, a broken hierarchy. I think it goes a few verses before what we actually read today, uh, talking about the heroes, the the Nephilim, the uh, the great warriors of old. It almost sounds like a cap uh, and cap society. You know, if, if it talks about Jeff Bezos and uh, all of these great leaders of industry, I wouldn't be surprised. God sees that world, says no, puts puts the ultimate no to that. And starts over with something new. And I think it's also important to recognize that that something new isn't perfect either, but it is an attempt at an improvement. And that could also be something for us to take into our lives and our praxis. Absolutely. And, and you know, in this story, God makes a mistake. God fucks up, right? <laughs> like the, the first part of the story is God regretting having made the world because of the pain that it caused God, right? And, um, and so God fucks up in this story. God makes a mistake and needs to undo it, right? And what what are the other mistakes that God's making in this story, right? What are the mistakes that we are inevitably going to make when we have our revolution, right? And when we build our new society, it's going to have problems, right? I'm an anarchist. I'm a utopian anarchist because I recognize that even if we built a utopia, there would still be problems <laughs> and we would still make mistakes because we're messy. We're we're beautiful and and wonderful and messy as hell and <laughs> we're not going to create a perfect society no matter what we do. And here this being that we see as the best being, right? Even if God is not perfect, God still fucks up. And so we are allowed to fuck up as we're doing these things and trying to rebuild this system after it's been so corrupt. Now, John, you you touched on something just barely the Nephilim, for people who don't know what the Nephilim are, I, I explicitly left them out of the story because I never have read a good Nephilim uh, story. And so, John, I'm going to have you back on, and we're going to discuss the Nephilim passage more in depth. But you're reading the Nephilim as something else. Tell me more about that. I, I know that it, it probably is something that's more ancient. It goes to a, an older time, but it almost does feel like a dig at Greco-Roman religion and their their fascination with heroes who are tragic but they're always bigger and better than all everyone else around them these people who decide the fate of society you know Aeneas and, and Caesar and Alexander and kind of saying they're not worth anything they can be washed away and life would go on without them but yeah for us I, I think we are so uh indoctrinated in the modern world in this idea of great man history of you know we have these leaders of industry, we have presidents, we have these single people, usually always white men, who change the world, and they're the ones who turn history on a pivot point. Nothing else matters, and that just 
leads so much into hierarchy, so much into unjust systems. I love that contrast because Noah is unremarkable. There's no reason why Noah is is counted as righteous. There's no reason given. It says, but as for Noah, the Lord approved of him. That's it. That's it. God approved of him. So Noah was a good person. Noah was a good enough person that he saw those animals and thought, yeah, I need to I need to make sure I save them, right? Noah was a good enough person to listen, but Noah was not special. Noah was just a person that was in the right place at the right time and chose to take a direct action that seemed crazy to everyone around him and resulted in the salvation of all humanity. And not just all humanity, but the whole earth. That that, that simple act saved the entire world. The Nephilim are described as the sons of God and the daughters of man. And so it is It is exactly that. They are these hybrid creatures. They are half angels, half humans, just like those Greco-Roman demigods who gain all this power and all of this authority. Um, and I love that. And then we go into the flood story, and we don't hear about the Nephilim again until we hear about Goliath, the giant that David kills. And Goliath is said to be a Nephilim. The Philistines are said to be the descendants of Nephilim, this group that comes in to oppress ancient Israel and to uh, keep them down and all these sorts of things. So that's a fascinating connection. Now, Snorkel, you wanted to talk more about the way that we get into this corruption, that we got into this violence in the first place. And you brought up that the forbidden fruit is uh, might be an analogy to uh, agriculture and the way that that leads to class systems. Tell me more about that. The idea of the agricultural evolution has gone through many ideations um, through the last like 20 or 30 years. When I was a kid growing up, the whole idea was that the agricultural revolution was like a very sudden thing, a sudden movement from hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists. And the older I got, the more evidence was uncovered, the more I started hearing about things that it was a congruent change. And the idea that hunter-gatherers actually may have had a healthier lifestyle and a more balanced quote-unquote work-life balance for our modern intents and purposes versus the first pastoralists and agriculturalists, the amount of work put into those kinds of lifestyles differed greatly. And so as soon as we see the advent of agriculture and pastoralism in early human societies, the quicker we see diseases starting to spread because of the proximity to animals as herd animals, the quicker we see issues such as like dental abscesses and cavities in the teeth of these people that we study because they're eating more grains, more processed grains. And even though their their process compared to our process nowadays is laughable, but it still did wear on their teeth. And it ultimately you can follow this trend where agriculturalism and sedentary lifestyle leads to a less healthy life to a lower average lifespan, but it also leads to a greater fecundity or fertility. You are able to produce more offspring in a shorter amount of time, but those offspring may or may not actually make it to adulthood. And so you have this experiment where it's hunter-gatherer people that have fewer offspring, but a greater chance of those offspring making it to adulthood, or the pastoralist, agriculturalist people who have access to more food, but also are exposed to more diseases and are less likely to produce healthy offspring into adulthood. 
this is something that has been an ongoing debate in archaeology, whether or not it actually plays a part in early human development and whether or not it plays a part in the quote-unquote agricultural revolution, which is still something that is debated. But it seems like enough of a big dividing point that you can argue whether one side is better than the other. And you still, you have people today arguing that, oh, a paleo diet is better and all these different things. And I'm not going to say which one is better. (laughs) Well, I mean, we watch, we watch Jordan Peterson uh, collapsing into tears every time he speaks because he only eats meat, right? So, (laughs) right. But there, there is a lot to be said for each side, and it's. I'm not arguing that agriculturalism and pastoralism didn't open the gates for quote unquote what we call civilization. But at the same time, it's like a Pandora's box, and so it really is this forbidden fruit. You have this knowledge that provides you the ability to provide for more people in your group, in your clan, in your family. You can grow bigger and stronger but at what cost? And the more people produce goods in excess, the more that leads to a class system where some people want to hoard that excess and other people are unable to, depending on their lifestyle, their abilities, their quote-unquote value to the group. And so the whole origin of the class system really started with agriculturalism where you have an excess of resources divided among one particular group of people who has access to this excess (laughs) that leads them to therefore make the rules. Whoever has the golden rule, whoever has the gold makes the rules. And this really led to the establishment and also downfall of civilization. Because yes, you can create giant city-states on this basis. You can create a surplus of food for a population, but you also create this stratified structure of civilization where people are in competition with each other. Instead of working cooperatively, you're working against each other. And what does that do? What does that accomplish? It is strife. It is competition. It is warfare. The origin of warfare has to be with people competing for resources. And I'm not I'm not going to say it didn't happen ever with hunter-gatherers. It just seems, in the fossil record at least, and in the historical record, to have been less of a problem. That is that is fantastic insight, and I'm so glad that you're here on this episode to talk about this. Because, you know, as we're thinking back to that first Genesis story, we have Adam and Eve, who are in a garden, where all the food is provided for them. They're just going exactly. around and plucking it off the trees. And the next story that happens is Cain and Abel are farming, because they've been cast out of that perfect hunter-gatherer society. And are and because of the curse. Yeah, exactly. And so are now cursed to work as agriculturalists. And so, you know, so many times throughout the Bible, we see these transitions that lead to violence. We see that first transition from uh, being in the garden to uh, agriculturalism that leads to Cain killing Abel. And then we see the transition in uh, in Judges and for Samuel from there being uh, local leaders who are decided upon by the community to suddenly there's a king. And with that king brings a whole new set of violence. And then we see again the 
change from uh, from prophets leading, uh, largely leading the religion in Israel and re- rejecting the imperial cult, to suddenly it being entirely centralized and surrendering to the Roman Empire that then results in the death of none other but uh, the people that Christians call the Son of God. And so there are consistently these cycles where it goes from this fall, this this fall of an ideal, to a hierarchy that causes the kind of violence that requires God to completely eradicate the people. What's the consequence of that first change from hunter-gatherers to agriculturalists? It's the murder of Abel that results in God needing to perform a flood against the earth. What happens in that second one? The the rise of the kings, it results in Israel not being faithful to God, and so God allowing an empire to come in and conquer them. And what happens the third time? Jesus dies, right? But in all of those things, there's also this cycle of regeneration that happens. Um, So thank you so much for bringing that up, that cycle of regeneration that comes back, which is again looped back into the agricultural cycle. When I'm growing my garden out here, every time I pull up a plant, I go and throw it in my compost heap, and it becomes the next bit of life for the next thing. It's a different thing, right? But it helps us understand that. And that really brings me to to the next point that I want to bring up. We talked a little bit about these being two different stories, right? That one is an ancient oral story that comes from a particular source that is probably oral in nature that's told and retold in different areas. And then there's another story, the story that the priests tell, that's very structured and very ordered. If you go through the story, um, the one story seems like the flood happened for 40 days and then they got out. The other story has a very precise, this is the year that Noah was born. This was the date in that first month. All of the numbers add up exactly the way they need to be to get there. If you subtract that other story's numbers, then they add up. But if you include that extra 40 days or uh, uh, 47 days, I think it is, then this the numbers don't add up. And that's part of the reason that we know that this is these are two different stories that Um, that have been combined into one. That very ordered structure that is the priestly story that's trying to tell us these things. And the priestly story is way more dramatic. The original story is probably about a localized flood, and Noah brings a rather small ark, and people get onto it, and they are saved. This other story is the water goes above the very tops of the mountains, and He has to bring seven clean animals and two unclean animals, a distinction that didn't exist in Noah's time, um, and so we know has to have come from afterwards. And all of those things, all of that retelling is a priestly attempt to historicize an ancient myth. And that distinction, I think, is something that's so useful for us to think about as leftists, right? We think about the story of the Russian Revolution, or we think about the story of uh, revolutionary Spain that resulted in in Franco rising, right? And those stories often define so many arguments that we end up having. <laughs> um, and and to be frank, I don't care about either story, right? I don't care about the exact historical details of either of those stories because. First off, I don't have time to learn every battle location that George Orwell was at the entire time he was in Spain, right? I have no brain capacity to really understand the finer details of why Trotsky and Lenin uh, didn't like each other at the 
one convention that they went to where they got into a spat that one time, but it's different from that other time that they got into a spat. It was different from the time that Stalin got, you know, and I'm messing all that up. Communists yell at me later. Um, but, <laughs> but those details don't matter to me as much as the myth that we come out of that from, right? What is the story that we get to tell because of those historical events? We see from the story of Spain that when people work together, we are able to create these independent communities that don't have to be governed by hierarchy. In Russia, we learned that we can establish local communities that provide everything that they need for each other. Now, we can have a debate about what happens afterwards. We can have a debate about how those societies fall apart because what happens? Every society we build is going to have something that's wrong with it and needs to be addressed. And when we don't address those things, it causes it to collapse. But here we have this story of a grand reset. How do we create that grand reset out of the system of violence that we currently live in? You know, even uh, early second century, I think like 120s, 130s, Justin Martyr was an early Christian writer who had an, uh, kind of an uh, interlocutor in a Roman named Celsus. And, you know, the Romans, violent people, bloody violent people. But Celsus heard the Hebrew stories, heard the Jewish stories, heard the Christian stories and said, I I've heard about this flood. I've heard about Joshua and the genocide of the Canaanites. Uh, your God is horribly violent, more violent than us even, uh, more violent than our empire. And uh, Justin Martyr, this early Christian writer uh, who eventually died for the faith, pacifist even in many ways, said, you know, we know that this story is allegorical. We don't read it literally. Um, we know that our God could never do something like that because we know our God. And, you know, pacifism is difficult in the real world. Uh, but I, I think there's there's something there that like, you know, just the same way we don't ever want to believe anything bad about our real parents uh, to say, no, I, I know, I know God, God would never do this. And uh, to let that kind of be a guiding light, even if it's not easy or simple. Well, and, and one of the things that I love about this story is that if uh, longtime listeners will have gone back to the first episode and heard me debate uh, with Derek and Davi, the connection between the Hebrew creation story, that first Hebrew creation story, and the cultures that are around them, where the other creation stories are dramatically violent, and they are warrior gods who are going to war with each other and causing creation because they kill each other, right? And in uh, John Collins' reading of the story, he sees uh, the God of Israel as defeating those other gods and tearing them apart and using their bodies to create the world in a very uh, a very subtle way that ancient readers would understand, but we don't understand. And here in this story, that God, that warrior God of creation, it makes a promise to no longer be angry like that and puts their bow into the sky. Now, we think that this story is about a rainbow. It is, but it's specifically about putting that weapon up in the sky. So we've talked about a lot tonight, a lot of different uh, sectors here. We've interwoven a bunch of different stories that we're, we have touched on and are going to touch on. Um, John, would you mind telling me your final thoughts to, to wrap up this discussion as you're going away from here? What, what really stands out to you? One of the most haunting things for me is, um, you know, we've touched a little bit on the analogy to climate change and, uh, you know, the real 
horror of climate change probably isn't that all human life will cease, but that it's going to be such a horrific event that even though humanity is so strong that it will continue, it's going to be a very narrow window, just like with this arc. And it's going to be ugly. It's going to be a time of extreme violence. And there's a horror show we don't want a part of. Well, and when we're thinking about these things, you know, we keep being part of the part of the genius of capitalism, right? Is that they keep selling us short-term solutions to a long-term problem, and they can just slap a label green on something and sell more of it. <laughs> and so, um, and this is all to benefit people who think that they're getting on the arc. And the only way that we are going to be able to stop this is if we don't let an arc be built just for a couple of people, but actually solve the problem. There are various indigenous groups that have presented a variety of solutions to this, both pre-Columbian contact and post-Columbian contact. Solutions that are sustainable and equitable and integral with the you know Western expansion and the native population to sustain humanity. And these have always been overturned by capitalism. And these solutions that have sustained people for thousands of years have been discounted because they're not as profitable. This is something that's very near and dear to my heart. It's just something I feel like I needed to say. As someone who has an indigenous heritage and has seen this toll that it takes on not just my family, not just my people, but all of the groups of indigenous people, all the people of the world. We're all here together on this planet as one, developing and forming as one, and we are hurting each other and ourselves by halting this progress that we can make and by preferring profit over sustainability. And that is something that is tragic and really haunts me. And I just wanted to say that we can do better, especially as Christians, as anarchists, as Anybody who is anti-capitalist, the future does not lie in profit. It lies in sustainability. And, you know, when we go back and think about these things, it comes back to violence, right? That we are perfectly willing to do violence on the people we have already done violence on. And that's why capitalism continues. But if we stop allowing our system to be run by the people who are at the very top, who are benefiting, who think they're getting on the arc, and instead say, either we all get through this together, or none of us do. Only then are we going to find the actual solution. Well, friends, it has been such a pleasure to have both of you, uh, John and Snorkel. I so appreciate you being here and sharing your uh, distinct and wonderful perspectives on these things. This is a big topic, and we're going to keep talking about it. If you're interested in discussing this episode, religion, or general leftism, please join our Discord channel found in the show notes. We host a Bible study every Friday at 12-ish p.m. Eastern Time to discuss this week's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the word in black and red. Your support helps me pay our amazing editor and relieves my guilty conscience of exploiting someone's free labor. If you would like to appear on the show or reach us for any reason, you can reach us at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Although the world might be full of violence, go into the world to create a new world. One where all of us get through the flood. Shalom. Shalom.